In offering this talk, I'll be drawing on the Buddha Dhamma's <coughs> specific uh, way of describing the human experience and the dynamics of being human offered by the Buddha. Um, from time to time, I'll use some Pali words. And from time to time, maybe there will be uh, a lot of rich material. And at other times, it will be very, just, you know, flow in a way that You know, it doesn't tax the thinking in that sense. And I'd like to encourage you to just let your mind receive it however it's beneficial. Don't worry about Pali, but if you're inspired by the Pali terms and you know them, that's why I'm putting them in there, because you can trace them to your knowledge base. You can also let them go, you see. It's okay without them. Likewise, with some of the, if something seems mildly technical at some point, it won't be highly technical. Then, if it, that serves you, there's a purpose to it and it makes sense and is something you can feel and work with, then that's what it's there for. And if not, you do not need it. So don't worry, really. Don't worry at all. Um, it's just what serves. The talk is like everything else we do. It's only about two simple related things. Suffering and the end of suffering. That's the whole work. So the rest of it is embellishment. But hopefully helpful, you know. We've been engaging in a relational meditation practice, Insight Dialogue. And sometimes touching really uh, challenging, difficult aspects of the heart, of our sense of self and things like loneliness and hunger and desire, fear. And also, at the same time, really developing clear, simple, steady mindfulness to see just what we see. So a certain sharpness and simplicity. And we've been doing this both in our silent practice, individually, internally, and in relational practice, where both of those qualities also exist, the sharp mindfulness, the simplicity, the concentration, and also the actuality of this life that we live with all of its constructions and all of its tangle. Nothing's left out. So already, we're saying something about 
the path. We're living the path in a certain way. And that way is a, a way that values the cutting through and the setting aside of all of the uh, uh, ways that we build up and believe in our story and saying, forget it for now, just look at immediate experience. And also saying, oh God, I'm falling in again. Here I am falling in. And we, f- we are at that edge of where falling in happens because otherwise we can't really know the suffering. We can't really uh, understand how the mind falls in. So we're living the path in a way that acknowledges this human totality. And that totality is happening and existing and manifesting, I should say, right now as I'm speaking. So I can point to the fact that we could really notice the quality of mindfulness in just any pause, like this one. And it's not distant. It's right here, right? Not far away, ever. And we can touch this contact with the world any time we remember. Sati, remembering. We touch the body on the cushion. We notice the touch of the light with the eyes. We notice the touch of sound with the ears, this voice that you're hearing, and the way language is taking rise inside your mind, if you will, or inside your head, and your mind is hearing this and making sense of it, even as I'm saying it. And all you have to do is look. And everything else is a proliferation, right? So any time you can touch this, any time you remember, and in a flash, we can be off in some fantasy or feeling of self or aversion or rejection or shame or desire, and that's here too. That's all right here. So, how we understand the path depends on how we understand this totality of the human experience. And how we understand this human experience comes back to how much are we willing to allow both this brightness and simplicity and the entanglement and complexity, right? Can we allow both? Can our sense of the Dhamma, our sense of meditation, really encompass both? Insight refers to an immediate, intuitive, 
understanding that cuts through the entanglement, that sees clearly, and the the ways in which we continually make trouble for ourselves, the way this mind feeds on its fantasies and perceives the world in distorted ways and therefore reinforces those fantasies and 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 then lives with its pressure of hunger pushing it through life without seeing it. Sometimes we cut through it. So there's a knowing and for a moment perhaps there's a real dropping. And perhaps some aspect of that confusion and entanglement, some of my, let's say, in my hunger to exist in this world and to survive and to be seen and acknowledged and to build up this self and all the strategies I've got for doing that, at some point I say, that's painful. I thought that felt good. That's what I've been trying to get more and more of. And look at that, I'm building a prison. And you see it. You see it directly. You see it maybe while you're in inside dialogue with someone and you've been trying to impress them and you've, you know, and maybe you're succeeding. And you realize maybe in a moment you pause and you see that not only is the success fragile, contingent, and gone the next moment, but the puffery itself hurts. So the best you can do is hurt. That's when you win. When you lose, you hurt worse. <laughs> what kind of deal is that? Right? But when you see it, when you know it, when you get it in the body, when you get it in your guts, that's when things change, right? So that's a kind of a aspect of insight. But also, because the pattern of this human life is so pressurized, pressurized by hunger, by the, by the constant thirst for the next experience, the next sense of safety, and all those constant dropping from one wanting to the next wanting, that pressure, because it drives the system, there can be a a collapse that rebuilds itself, you might say. It's like we've got this uh, ego immune system that adapts to invaders and rebuilds itself and it says, ooh, and you know how to make the me and you drag in the various materials, you go to your supply cabinet, you say, that really hurt, I'm going to leave inside dialogue retreat and I'm going to go, you know, uh, look at my high school papers where I got a lot of A's, you know, whatever it is you do. You know, maybe you reread your reviews or you, 
uh, you know, you just go to a friend who you know just absolutely adores you and, you know, fill it back up. It, we got all kinds of strategies. I don't have to make you see that. But sometimes there's genuine collapse. This is important to know. And each uh, moment of, uh, if we understand how the mind is making this system, how we constantly rebuild the reality, just like we're doing right now, if we really look closely in that, at that, we can actually get a, quite a good intuitive understanding of the potential for freedom, the potential for a genuine and total collapse of the system of wanting, and a real respect for the gradual path of erosion of self, the erosion of that pressure, not the sudden collapse, gradual training, gradual practice, gradual progress. So it's all right there in, in sort of this moment-by-moment moment unfolding of the body-mind. The stuff we can see, at least we can see its effects in our lives make a very good place to start. For example, we talk about this, this hunger, hungering. It's not like a thing. It's a process. It's a hungering that is going on. right? And you can look at it biologically as a starting point and say, well, yeah, sexual hungering and all the pleasure and that helps you know, the species keep procreating. Uh, hunger for pleasure of food, well, it helps me keep eating, right? So it helps me keep surviving. And of course, I want the warmth when it's cold and I want to be cooler when it's warm. I'm trying to keep the, you know, homeostasis of the organism intact. These things are kind of clear, right? You can see that physiologically. And of course, what happens is that in this searching for pleasure, that just gets more and more elaborated. And the uh, biological hungers combine with the psychological hungers. So not only do I want to eat, now I'm starting to have preferences. Right? I don't just want uh, enough nuts and berries and dead animals to fill myself, you know, now I want Italian coffee. <laughs> you know, and it's, you can build your own story there too. I mean, I've just skipped a few million years. I hope you don't mind. <laughs> but you get the idea, right? You, you, know, you know how that's the same body-mind just elaborated 
in this case with the Italian coffee, elaborated through wealth and privilege. You know, we, we could do it. And, oh, and by the way, all that time there were inventors and people learning to roast coffee and Arabs teaching us how to do that. And all these things, history happens. But so what? That's just this, that's the details. That's the punctuation. But the actuality of it is that it's still just hunger. Right? And the fact is that the moment-to-moment experience is going out to get and if we can't get, we're unhappy. If we do get, we're, we think we're happy, but we're really tense because we're going to lose it soon and then wonder where to get it next. And then people get in our way and the greed gives way to hatred so that it's like, oh, that person got in my way. We punch them and we grab the coffee. <laughs> or we punch them and we grab the oil, Okay. It's the animal. This is an animal, this thing, this human thing. And that whole cycle, of course, is suffering. And But now we've got all the elaborated preferences. And the same as you know from experience, the same goes in the relational social domain. Not only do I want to make sure I have enough babies that my genes dominate the earth. I also want to have them, you know, with this woman instead of this woman, or with this man instead of this man. And I, not only that, I want to have a really nice house, not only so I can have the nice woman or have the nice man, but so that I can keep this body, you know, regulated and comfortable. And oh, by the way, could we get that in a Tudor model, please? <laughs> right? So we're back up to elaborating it, and then we have to go get a job that supports it, and the whole life gets configured around that. But meanwhile, seriously, so does the personality. I mean, this is all very funny when we're talking about Italian coffee and Tudor houses, but the personality our personality, my personality, is getting configured by all of this. If I'm good at it, I get really sensitive to other people and I learn to manipulate people to, let's say, I'm a good salesman or a manager and, you know, and I'm headed towards my house in the suburbs. Or, let's say... <laughs> that uh, I'm not very good at those things, but I'm, uh, you know, I have a pleasant appearance. I'm a, a, let's say, a beautiful woman, and I learn how to work with that. It's my currency. That's what I've got. So I learn how, you know, and I feel that's myself, and I can move this self in a certain way, and I can, uh, you know, adapt the features of the self in a certain way. I can move the hairs around and adjust the face pieces and so on. <laughs> and I can make, I can, I, can, I can do my best to manipulate others. You know, if I'm a woman looking beautiful, it's most likely, but not necessarily, a man. And I learn how to do that. And this now is myself. And how contingent is this? 
How stressful. So that which I think is making me happy, you know, looking good, got the right cosmetics, got the right dress on and the whole thing, you know, five, ten years later and it's all starting to wrinkle, there's nothing you can do about it, mm-hmm. you know, and the body starts to change in ways that are deemed by society to be less attractive. So it's contingent by impermanence, but in the moment of success, it hurts. Remember that. In the moment of success, it hurts. That's what we forget. We think that we're just maybe on this path so that when things fail, we won't be so hurt so bad. But what we don't really get is that when things are in this mundane sense, successful, they still hurt bad. We carry around tension and stress and fear and call it normal. We think it's our our highest and best use of this life. This is success. So the personality and all of its preferences and so on but we can get a handle into what's happening in the mind by just noticing that hunger that drives it. Where does that come from? What's happening at that hunger? We already see that the hunger creates a kind of a grasping to this, you know, conditions, my body, my home, my this, my that how I'm going to get this, or each moment of contact with the world, and I grasp at this perception, and I grasp onto this perception, and I'm trying to, you know, get myself either looking good or feeling good, and I'm manipulating as best I can my environment with all these perceptions. And as I do so, and there's all this tension operating, that tension is what I call me. It's holding on like this. It's holding on really tightly to each moment of experience. And this is just, perhaps I'm just walking down the sidewalk in a wandering thought. It doesn't have to look like having a nervous breakdown somewhere. You know, this is just normal life. You know your own minds, don't you? Don't you know that your, you know, your mind is kind of frantic most of the time? It's not just me, is it? I hope not. <laughs> so, so there you have it. You know, you've got this rat cage of a mind, and it's 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 vibrating like crazy, trying to. How am I going to survive? How? What, what? You know. Of course, we don't have that thought in language. But that's what's going on. How am I going to survive? How am I going to find some happiness? How is it going to be okay? Next moment, next moment, next moment. What's next? What's next? It kind of hurts to even say it, actually. I don't like saying it. Sorry to make you listen to it. So you've got this, this, this tension thing, and this feels like me. This is me. This is my life. So you've got the tanha is this hunger, this thirst... You've got the upadana, which is the clinging that arises dependent on that hunger. And then you've got the bhava, the becoming, the identification, the sense of self that forms around that grasping, around that rat cage mind. And that mind 
has a body. And the body is existing in the world, moment by moment. Each moment, this body-mind fabricating this sense of existence, birth, born into this world every moment. We begin to get a sense of the entanglement problem I was talking about. So let me jump to another place in, in this sort of kind of the puzzle or the tangle of this human experience. I think it is obvious, at least, could be if once I say it, that we don't know this is going on. We're just living it and we're blind to it. So there's all these hungers and all these dynamics and all this rat cage stuff and all this me. And it's all going on, moment by moment by moment, building and rebuilding this sense of self and all of I got to get this next and all of the actions that come out of that, the behaviors, and we don't know it. It's not just that we're not mindful. We can be mindful. We're usually not, but we could be mindful. And what the thinking mind, what the normal cognizing mind is able to see is just the outer shell of all of this. Even if we're really doing our normal best to see what's going on, what we're going to get is, oh, I'm thinking these thoughts now. Where do you think those thoughts come from? If you want to just take the neuroscience of it, look at the other, you know, so many billions and trillions of neuronal connections and neural nets that are operating to make this poor little thought that you're having. It's a whole, it's a whole, like, a cosmopolitan bee's nest in there of, of, of neural activity and just on the thinnest of surfaces, like the atmosphere around the earth and the vastness of space, is this thought that you can see. It's like nothing. But it's all coming up out of this flux of the mind. Yeah? So, you get a little deeper, say, oh yeah, I can begin to see as I get a little more still. See, now this is the structure of the body-mind, of the organism, and the nature of the problem is right now, as I'm talking, pointing us towards practice. That's what our that's little turn I just made, okay? So the body-mind calms down just a little bit. And maybe you begin to see, ah, Every thought is connected to the body. You begin to notice that thought and feeling 
can't be separated like that. That one is triggering the other in this constant loop. And that it's body-mind. It's truly nama-rupa. It's truly body-mind. You just get that, that glimpse. And so you begin to get a sense. Oh, I thought I was in control. <clears throat> Guess what? Right? All those causes and conditions from prior thought moments, prior actions, are actually conditioning this little tip of, of atmosphere of this moment of thought or emotion. And it's all coming up out of this incredible prior constructing process that's now just unfolding like this with these thoughts and these emotions. It's not some kind of simplistic situation where I know who I am and this is my thought, this is my personality. It's not like that. Does that make sense to you? So that whole complex that's set in motion with these, this whole constructing process, each moment of consciousness, each instant, infinitesimal instant, boom, 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 is arising at the tip of the moving energy of that fabricating process, that conditioned process, which means, for example, that it feels as you hear this talk and you feel like I'm sitting here hearing this talk, that that whole sense of I sitting here is your history that you bring into this room, this whole constructed, you know, all prior actions, all prior thoughts are represented right now in the tip of this moment as you hear these words and it feels like this. So, again, we're not aware of this so we keep reforming it, we keep remaking it. It keeps tumbling forward. So we have this not seeing that we call avijja, Ignorance that allows the continued uh, upwelling and contributing to this whole constructing process, sankaras, which is the conditions for the arising of vijnana, consciousness. So this moment of consciousness, the experiencing of being, the experiencing of sense, the experiencing of the sense of thought, each moment of contact, vijnana, consciousness, is arising. Consciousness, contact. Consciousness, and then light touches the eye, there's consciousness, seeing. Sound touches the ear, consciousness, hearing. And not just hearing, there's perception. So you hear words, you're understanding words now. 
So moment by moment, consciousness, perception, consciousness, perception. So this contact with consciousness is the food for sensation, the food for perception, unfolding moment by moment, based on this whole constructing process and that whole process, this whole system is pressurized and charged by Tana. That's what's driving it, that thirst. So as the mind calms down, we begin to see this. If we can allow the mind to get calm and awake, clear and alert at the same time, then perhaps we begin to see a little deeper, if you will, into this whole process. And then sometimes, as I was saying before, sometimes we see what we wouldn't see, couldn't see, under normal circumstances. We see that what we thought was working, satisfying our hungers temporarily and trying to get things lined up in our lives just right so that those hungers would be like sort of met, We may not be so foolish as to think it's going to be permanent, but we still think that that's the best we can do, and that's what we do. That's where we put our energy. And we see with this clarity that tension and contingency. And with a deeper clarity, we see the constructing process itself. To me, this says something deeply important about the nature of the path. When I talk about the path, again, it's this simple, simple message, suffering and the end of suffering. It says to me, anyway, you decide for yourselves, says to me that there is this not only potential, but realizable by each of us here in this room, realizable potential for insight, for collapse, and even perhaps for the total collapse of not believing the suffering system anymore and really entering a really entirely different quality of life. But all of the, let's say, degrees or what have you, of insight. And recognizing the nature of the entanglement, the nature of the pressurizing system of hunger, of these sankharas, these constructing processes, these habits, patterns, history, the whole psychology of it, the psychophysiology of it. We look at that and we say, whoa, Gradual training, 
gradual practice, gradual progress, and we get a sense of what the Buddha called effacement. Effacement, the gradual erosion of the self. And now we're talking about stuff like arrogance, you know, lack of sense control, even in a gross way, perhaps a refined way, being obstinate, seeking conflict, being harsh. And next thing you know, you're talking about the path of liberation. We haven't changed the direction we're going, right? This effacement, you with me on that? Same direction. Only now, we're understanding, through this understanding of the workings of the mind and the nature of the problem, we're speaking about it in terms of human decency. We're speaking about it in terms of humility and kindness. We're speaking about it in terms of coming to, you know, whatever understanding we can get and practicing that understanding, developing it further, looking, looking carefully. What is going on here? Being easily teachable not falling into competitive, hard patterns, harmful patterns. We look at all the ways that we build up and prop up this self. Say, that is the path. To look clearly, to recognize that that hurts and that it sustains a lifelong or many, many times lifelong, many lifelongs, who knows what that means? Pattern of pain. Pattern of pain. Which finally brings me to the relational aspect of this. All of those pieces that I was talking about, the refined insight that comes when the mind is steady, calm, alert, collapse, and that this is something we can do together, not just in silent practice. To describe it the way I've been describing it, it sounds like, it could sound like, we're talking about a skin-enclosed, you know, bag of neurons and hormones and muscles and stuff, kind of navigating its dumb way around the world. And, you know, that poor psychophysical unit. And maybe it'll become an awakened psychophysical unit. But let me tell you, all those prior moments of contact from which consciousness arises and it feels like this right now? Remember that? (coughs) Ask yourself, how many of those moments of contact 
involved another person, a thought about another person, a functioning in society or culture in some way, and so many other people. Think about it. A lot. I'll let you do the math. It's way too much for me. I can't do that math. I don't know the numbers that big. But the fact is that most of these moments of contact, of our engagement, are intrinsically relational. Our physiology is intrinsically relational. That's how we survived as a species when other animals were faster stronger, and so on, because we could work together. So evolution favored our working together, and now we have all these neural circuits and all these hormones that say, work together. Here's how. Your hormones and your neural circuits teach you, tell you how to work together. The sensitivities. That's why this practice is so hard and so strong, so powerful because of that intrinsic relationality. So every moment of consciousness, and please hear me, whether you're with another person or not, that moment of contact is intrinsically relational. Because all the constructing of the mind, of the body, that led and made that moment happen, were conditioned relationally. You can be out in the middle of the Sahara Desert, by yourself. And you will feel either alone and lonely, or not alone and not lonely. You will feel your relational being. Always. Not just in terms of some psychological loneliness, but all the way down to the moment-by-moment -moment experience. And so, we tap that power we turn it towards awakening. And we do this kind of, we look for this possibility of insight. But we also engage in a path of effacement. There's the erosion through kindness, through patience. of the holding and hurting of the self. And it all fits this whole, the breadth of the path. It's both completely individual and completely relational. It is both gradual and sudden. So, I offer that for your reflection, this sense of what is a whole life path, what is practice, what is the nature of this human experience. And I also hope that your meditation practice, that is now both relational and individual, feels harmonious with that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.